Well, it is certainly good to be with you folks tonight. And I'll tell you what, I'm starting out very, very impressed. Now, what I mean by that is I've been in this business for like over three decades. And I'm not sure I have ever seen a congregation asked to move forward that actually did (laughs) until tonight. I don't even try that anymore. So, uh, wow, you know, it is quality tonight. It may not be quantity because folks are away, but it's, it's definitely quality. You know, I, um, I went to camp myself. We just finished our camp. In fact, we came up to Kentucky for it. We, the last two years, uh, we've, uh, we've switched our camps. And so, uh, last year we started at, uh, the, um, Western Kentucky Youth Camp. I know some of you know where that is. And, and so we've had a great time. But this was my first year that I was a counselor. And I said, my wife's been a nurse for the last couple of years there. And you have to understand, I don't even have kids in their 20s anymore. I mean, so I'm kind of getting up there. And uh, I'll be 56 in about a month. And so, but I said, look, I, I want to do, I want to be a counselor before I get too old to where I can't be a counselor. And then when the week ended, I realized I missed my window. (laughs) Too late. Too late. Wore me out. But we had a great, great time. Well, I am glad to be back. I have been here a few times. It's been, uh, I don't know, three or four years since I've been here. But I always enjoy coming up. My wife's usually with me. She's not tonight. She loves to come with me. But her sister, her twin sister, came over to visit her from South Carolina and they don't get to see each other very often. And so they decided that uh, they would just stay there at Concord Road tonight. So I'm kind of lonely. That's another reason that you moving up has helped me. I would have felt really lonely if everybody would have been way back. But uh, So thank you for helping me there. Well, we are going to talk about balance with rest. I really like the theme of the, uh, of the summer series. Uh, balancing ourselves out as people of God and all of the different facets that help us to be balanced people. You know, we all want to be useful instruments to God. And there are several things that go into being instruments, uh, great useful instruments of God. And one of those is rest. And so as we get ready to talk about that, I actually want you to turn to the book of First Kings First Kings chapter 17, that is going to be our primary text. We're going to bounce around, but that's going to be our primary text as we think about balanced by rest. Now, before we do that, one of the things I always like to do before I lead a Bible study is to ask God to bless us. So if you don't mind, let's bow for just a moment. Father, it is a joy to be here, and we are especially thankful at this moment for your word. We believe with every ounce of our being that we are holding in our hands and that we are reading your book. We believe the testimony of Scripture, that you are its ultimate author. And Father, as we have the privilege of opening it tonight, we pray that we will open it with open hearts. And that, Father, we will hear these things that you have revealed to us through your Spirit We pray that they will find hearts that are open and fertile. We pray for inspiration. We pray for instruction. 
And we pray that you'll find in us hearts that are eager to comply. And so it's in the name of Jesus, we would ask you to bless these few moments that we spend in study together. And we say, Amen. Okay, let's take a look at chapter 17. First Kings, if you're following along, is where you want to be. First Kings, and here we are introduced to one of the great, great, great characters of Scripture. I just absolutely love Elijah. And here in 17, chapter 17 of the first book of Kings, chapter 1, Elijah just kind of like pops onto the scene. Uh, a very simple man. He's a very obscure man. He comes from an obscure place. And here he is in all of his simplicity and all of his obscurity. And he's standing before the most powerful man in the land at that time. He's standing before King Ahab. And he looks at King Ahab and he says to him, just unequivocally, there is going to be a drought in the land. And when he says there's going to be a drought in the land, it's not just any old drought. It is a drought that the text says is going to last for years. Well, let's just read it there in verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite said uh, was of the settlers of Gilead, and he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, you know, the the folks who live in that part of the world, they're used to uh, dry conditions. It's pretty arid over there, and and for much of the year, you can uh, pretty much not expect any rain. And so they're ready for it. They've got wells they dig. They have cisterns that have been hewn out of bedrock. Some of those cisterns you'll see over there just can hold tens of thousands of gallons. And so... They're really prepared for these dry moments. They can spend a few weeks, they can spend a few months, typically, and they can get by. But but this drought, Elijah says, it's not going to be a few weeks, and it's not going to be a few months. It is going to be, as I said, years. Now, uh, as he as he says this, and as he brings this message to Ahab, notice that he also says, as the Lord... The God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Now, when he says that, I think there's a real between-the-lines message for Ahab. And I think that between-the-lines message is basically, you may think you're the most powerful man in this land, but you are not the most powerful. You can't start the rain, and you can't stop the rain, Only God can do that. He is the most powerful. He is the sovereign of all. Now, after this great bold moment as Elijah comes onto the scene, you might expect him to just hit the ground preaching. I mean, walk out of the palace and start hitting town to town, village to village, announcing what God's going to do. God is taking away the rain. There's not going to be any dew. There's not going to be any rain. It's going to last for years. He's trying to get your attention. You need to listen to him. If you'll listen to him, if you open your hearts to him, then you're not going to have to endure this. You would think that would be the plan. But that's not what happens. And that's not God's plan for Elijah. What happens is God sends him to isolation. He tells him 
look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. So he sends him across the river. He sends him to what would be modern-day Jordan, and he sends him to this ravine, Kareef, this wilderness area, and he says, I want you to stay there. And uh, and so he's going to stay there. In fact, the text is going to use the words that he lived in verse 5. He lived by the brook Kareef, which is east of the Jordan. And he lived there. We don't know how long, but it was for a while because he lived there until even that brook began to dry up. Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, why... Why did God do that? Why why did God, after this moment when he announces to Ahab what's going to happen, why does God send him into isolation? Now, I think there's a couple of reasons. The first and probably the most obvious is that it's a divine protection plan. Because, as you probably know, this is a Wednesday night quality audience, and you probably know Ahab's wife Jezebel, and you know that you know, she's really the power behind the throne. Ahab's pretty spineless. And, and it's, his government really is what you might want to call a petticoat government because she really is the power. And she has been killing all of the prophets of the Lord that she could get her hands on. She's been swatting them like we would swat flies. Just look over in chapter 18 here and look at verse 4. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord... Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. She is trying to annihilate. She is trying to exterminate the land from every prophet of God. And so when God sends him into isolation, I think it's pretty obvious that it's part of a divine protection plan. But I also think it's more than that. I also think it's something of a spiritual retreat. I think it's a plan for his spiritual growth and his spiritual refreshment. Because Elijah's going to face some really, really tough times. There are some days ahead that are going to be extremely difficult. There are going to be some days that challenge begin to cover it. It is going to be hard. It is going to be agonizing. And if he's going to be able to perform and to carry out the ministry that God has in, in store for him, he's going to have to be spiritually prepared. And so as we think about rest, and as we think about what we need to be useful instruments, I'm going to suggest to you There's a couple of forms of rest that we really need to keep in the forefront of our mind. And one is we need to rest to spiritually refresh. And I think that's what's going on here. He needs to be spiritually strong. I think this really is instructive here. Uh, That... That we need to have prep time. We need to get away from the cacophony of life. We need to get away from the busyness of the world. And we need to get alone time with God. And I think that's what is really going on here. Before he starts his ministry in earnest, he is there 
by the brook Kareth, and it's just him and the Lord. He's away from every other demand of life. He's away from every other distraction of life. And it's him and the Lord. And you know that in that process, he is spiritually growing. Now, one of the reasons that I do see this as something of a spiritual retreat uh, is because we learned the same lesson in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, just mark your place here. We're going to come back to 1 Kings, but flip over to Mark chapter 1. And we see this demonstrated regularly in the life of Christ. Look at Mark chapter 1. When you get over there, I want you to look down about verse 35. Here's what it says in the early part of Jesus' ministry. It says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went away to a secluded place and he was praying there. Jesus, I don't have to tell you about how busy his life was. I don't have to tell you about all the demands of his ministry. I mean, he couldn't escape the demands of his ministry. People heard about his miracle ministry from all over the place. One of my favorite texts is in Matthew chapter 15, where he leaves Jewish territory and he goes predominantly into Gentile territory. And and we don't really know why he, he does that. Uh, maybe it was to try to escape the demands of ministry, but uh, but it doesn't work because he is met immediately by a woman whose daughter is demon-possessed, and, and she just throws herself, and she is begging and pleading and following him and hounding him and his apostles. He just, he just couldn't get away from it. And so he was, he was so busy in his ministry, but he knew what he needed, and he needed to get away from that busyness. As important as the demands of his ministry was, he understood that he needed time alone with God. He needed to rest with just him and God for spiritual refreshment. I like the way it states this here, in the early morning while it was still dark. You know, it sounds to me like he was setting his alarm clock. That he was, this, he didn't just wake up and say, well, I'm away. I might as well go pray. This seems to be much more purposeful than that. This seems to really be what people say is intentional. That he knew, I'm getting up in the morning while it's still dark, and I'm going to have some alone time, me and the Lord. You know, turn over to Luke chapter 5. Look at Luke chapter 5. Go down about verse 15 and 16. You'll see the same thing. Luke chapter verse 15 and 16, it says, But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. See, it was just habitual with him. He knows what he needs. He needs that alone time with God for spiritual refreshment. And so when we think about the importance of rest, I want us to think about the importance of resting for spiritual refreshment. We really do, like Elijah, need to have our kareth. I don't know where yours is. If you don't have one, I would suggest that you develop one. You find one. 
that Karif might be a room in your house that is just seldom used. Or that it's just a place where you can just go and you know you're not going to have any interruptions and you're going to spend quality time there with the Lord. Listen, your Karif may be when you go to work at lunchtime, there's a little park right down near your office. And you can go down there and there's this little gazebo that nobody ever sets in. And there's benches there. That might be your Karif. Karif can be anywhere. It's anywhere that you go because you recognize you need that. You need that alone time if you're going to be a useful instrument to God. You're going to have to be spiritually built up. You're going to have to be spiritually energized. And you're going to have to be spiritually refreshed. If we want to grow spiritually, we've got to have this kind of rest. This alone time with God. We've got to value these times of isolation with God. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Kings and let's talk about a second type of rest. So the first type is we need to learn to rest for spiritual refreshment. But we also need to learn to rest for physical and emotional refreshment. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's go down to about verse 20. We're going to now focus on chapters 18 and chapter 19. These are two fascinating chapters, especially the fact that they're side by side. Because what you have in chapter 18 of 1 Kings is you have Elijah at his greatest. And in chapter 19, you have Elijah at his worst. I mean, in chapter 18, he is full of faith. He is full of the Spirit of God. You know, there in verse 20 of chapter 18, he's standing there on Mount Carmel, and he is all alone. And he's facing a king who has been hunting him now for years. And he is facing hundreds of these prophets of Baal. And there he is, and he is so bold. And as I said, he is so full of the Spirit of God. And he calls on God to demonstrate for everyone there, before all of the representatives of Israel, that God is the one true and living God, and that Elijah is his man. And that's exactly what God does. It's one of the greatest displays of the omnipotence and sovereignty of God in all of Scripture. And when that day is over, and when that event is over, suddenly all of the representatives of Israel are saying, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah is God. All those prophets of Baal are slaughtered. And Elijah somehow miraculously outruns Ahab's chariot all the way to the winter palace there at Jezreel. Now we come to chapter 19. Well, Ahab gets back to the palace, and he tells Jezebel everything. He tells about how Elijah mocked him, how he just made fun of him, uh, you know, everything that he did, how Elijah laughed at him, laughed at him, laughed at the, the prophet's life. He told her how 
Elijah had all of the prophets slaughtered? Well, I told you a minute ago that Ahab's government was really a petticoat government. She was really the power behind everything. And you can kind of see here uh, just how spineless Ahab was. Now, look at verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so uh, he did that. But it doesn't seem like he stake in what needs to be done. But she knows. She knows everything is at stake. And she knows exactly what's to be done. She knows their power is at stake. And she knows that Elijah has to die. And he's got to die quickly and violently. And so she sends a message to him. It's in verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger saying, I swear to you, by all of my gods, tomorrow, by tomorrow, you are a dead man. But here's her exact word. So may this do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. Well, now, if, if I didn't know the story, and if you didn't know the story, you would think, oh, but she, she thinks that's going to intimidate that guy in, cha- in chapter 18? She thinks the guy standing on Mount Carmel, she thinks that's going to scare him? She's about to find out who she's dealing with. But wow. She terrified him. In fact, that's what it says there. And he was afraid there in verse 3. And he just folded. He just completely folded and took off running just as far and just as fast as he could go into the wilderness. You know, I really like chapter 19. And and I'll tell you why I really like chapter 19, and that is because I can really relate to this. I'll just be honest with you. This chapter really does speak to me. Because I really do believe that this is how life is for those who choose to give themselves totally to God. There are going to be those times in your life when you feel so full of faith, when you feel so strong in the Lord, you feel so, uh, uh, you know, just full of, uh, of vigor and, and you're fearless for the Lord. And the next minute, it's like our faith has completely vanished. You know, it's like one day everything is going great. Life's great. The job's great. The, the wife's great. The husband's great. The kids are great. Everything's great. And then suddenly, the next day, it's like everything is rotten. The job's rotten. Health is rotten. The family's rotten. The kids are rebelling. rebelling, And that's how... And it can switch, it can switch on a dime just like it does here. You know, I'm, it, when I think about it, it, you know, switching on a dime like that, like I think of Matthew chapter 26, uh, where Jesus, you know, is, it's the shadow of the cross is looming. He's about to get arrested and Peter says to him, Lord, everybody else may run. Everybody else may forsake you. 
But me, you can count on me. There is one person, and the, if there is one you can count on, you're looking at him. I will be the one who has your back every second. Well, the chapter is not even done when he is denying Christ three times. That, that, that's how it works. It, it can change like that on a dime. So what was it? I mean, what caused this, you know, what caused Elijah to fold like this? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Well, first of all, it says, and he was afraid. Now, there's some uh, versions, like the New King James Version, it says, and when he saw that, he, 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 he got out. He, he saw it. And, and so, uh, I, I think, first of all, he did what a lot of us do. And that is, when trouble comes, suddenly, you, your eyes, you, you're, they leave the Lord, and suddenly all you're doing is you're focusing on the trouble. And, and you stop seeing God, and so you see the trouble. And I think that's one of the things he did. But I think another problem that he had, I think he was in a very weakened place spiritually. And part of the reason I think he was in a weakened place was because he was physically and emotionally Exhausted. Now, why would I say that? Well, let's just look down. Let's start at verse 5. So he's running. He, he goes for a day's journey, verse 4 tells us, into the wilderness. I told you, he ran as fast and he ran as far as he possibly could. And so verse 5 says, He lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And then God came. And so, I want you to notice what God did. But before we look at what God did, let me tell you what God didn't do. God didn't kick him in the ribs and say, get up, you coward! God didn't do that. God didn't say, what are you doing, Elijah? He doesn't say that yet. What are you doing? He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, you're going the wrong way, you know. He doesn't say that. This is the first time that God sends a message to Elijah here in chapter 19. And his message is this. Hey, it's time to get up and eat. That's the message. All right, take a look at it here. He lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said... Arise, eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Now, that may not sound like that's a great meal to you, but let me tell you what. When you are running for your life in the desert, that's a gourmet meal. Now, man, I'm telling you, Bread. Mm. 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 So last week I spoke at Calvert City, Kentucky. And last Wednesday night. And my wife and I, we went early because uh, we wanted to eat at Patty's 1880 Settlement. 
We'd never eaten there. Uh, two youth ministers at Concord Road and me, we went up the day before everybody came to camp. And so, and it's not far from, from the camp there. And so Saturday night, the kids and everybody, everybody else comes on Sunday, but we went on Saturday to get some things together. And so we said, we'll go to Patty's tonight and eat. And we got there and it was like a two-hour wait. And we went, well, I ain't waiting two hours. I mean, I know it's good, but it ain't, I don't think anything's that good. So... So we found something else. And so I told Leo, hey, we're going to be up there next week. We'll go. And so this was the first time. And they, they brought out that flower pot bread. I just, I just wish at that moment I would have said, listen, you can take my catfish back. I, this is good. Bring me another flower pot. Because, man, that, that bread and that strawberry butter, oh, my. And uh, just... I mean, set me up with some great bread, and on a day like this, some cold water, and I'll be good. This was a gourmet meal to him. It's what he needed. And then you know what he did? He went back to sleep. And you know what God did then? After he slept for a while, God sent an angel, verse 7, a second time, and touched him and he said, it's time to get up. It's time to eat. you got to keep your strength up. Because you got a long journey ahead. Again, notice, God's not rebuking him. God is not uh, accusing him. God is sustaining him. And the reason he is, is... He needs that. I think this is, makes it pretty clear that he needed sleep. And he needed rest. Now, by the end of this chapter, God's going to say, it's time to get back to work. It's time to get back to work. But before God says, it's time to get back to work, God lets him rest. Because he needs the rest. In fact, notice what it says in verse 8 here. So he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. 40 days and 40 nights pass. Now I know there are, is some theological significance here. I mean, I mean, there has to be theological significance here. If we had time, we'd go to like Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, and we can see Moses there and he's on Horeb for... 40 days and 40 nights. And, and we could go to Matthew chapter 4 and we could see Jesus there and, and, you know, for 40 days and 40 nights and there in that divinely orchestrated moment of temp- testing and temptation. And, and then of course in Matthew chapter 17, that's when Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all there together. Uh, it's, it's like those 40 days and 40 nights is saying like he's a, that he's a, a, a type of Christ, Elijah. That he is a, uh, a type of Moses. So I know that there's some theological significance here. But I believe that there is more to it than that. I don't think it's just about that. I don't think it's just about saying something about the identity of, uh, of Elijah. I think it is a continuation of Elijah's need to rest. And God gives him 40 more days. Now again, 
Now God is going to say, basically, it's time to get back to work. Now, after that 40 days, then he says to Elijah, hey, what are you doing here? And that's when Elijah says, well, I'm all alone. There's nobody left. And God gives him a little reality therapy and says, no, you're not the only one left. And uh, and listen, uh, he calls him out of this cave that he's crawled in. And, and there's these manifestations of the presence of God. And he hears the voice of God. Remember I said Elijah just saw the threat of, uh, of Jezebel and he just folded. That's what happens when you see something and you take your eyes off God. It's kind of like the spies in the book of Numbers. They had seen... That, look, they walked through the whole Red Sea thing. And they saw God in all of His sovereignty and all of His power. And then they get there and it says, Oh, we can't take the land. We saw the, the, the strength of the people, the size of the people... Uh, the, the, how fortified the cities are. See, they saw the problem and they took their eyes off God. So what God is doing here is He's getting Elijah. He calls him to this place of revelation to get his eyes back on him. And then after that, he says, now listen, it's time to get back to work. Here's where I want you to go anoint. And I also want you to get reconnected with somebody who's going to minister to you. He doesn't tell Elijah that, but that's clearly part of it when he's to uh, go and commission Elisha, and, uh, and, and Elisha is going to minister to him for the rest of his life. But So he's going to have to do all of that. It's going to be time to get back to work, but he doesn't say it's time to get back to work until you have these 40 days there. Now, you know, as we think about that, uh, I think it's very clear that God knows... Rest is so important. You know, you can even see it in Jesus' life. You know, in that first point that we looked at tonight, rest is important for spiritual refreshment. But you also see that rest is just important for physical and emotional refreshment. Look over in Mark chapter 6 here. In Mark chapter 6, down about verse 30 and 31, after the apostles get back from a very productive ministry, It says, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Look, you've got to rest for a while. You know, when you think about God understanding the importance of that, we think about Exodus chapter 20 and verse 9 and 10 where God actually dictated rest to his people. He made it a law that you have to rest. You know, when, I, uh, when I'm trying to find out something that's wrong with my car, or someone asks me what might be wrong with their car, I, I'm kind of a, a, a shade tree mechanic, and I mean very shade tree. I'm, I, can, I can do a few things. I can, I've taken a few engines out, put a few engines in. I don't rebuild them, but I can change them. And, and, uh, and so... So sometimes people will ask me things, and and uh, and one of the things that I always uh, tell them to do is, uh, as I help walk them through some things, is, uh, well, let's see what your manufacturer's recommendation is on this. Uh, let's get your owner's manual, or let's get the Haynes manual, let's, uh, you know, the Chilton's manual. Let, let's get the manual, and uh, because that will tell us how to how to do this right. And, and you want your car to last long, the manufacturer has told you how to do that. Well, you want to last a long time in, in the kingdom? You want to make it to the end? You want to be a useful instrument? Listen, God manufactured you. 
And he knows what you need. And he has put that right here. And you need rest. You need rest for spiritual refreshment. You need time alone with God. And you need rest for physical and emotional refreshment. If we get weakened physically and emotionally, it can weaken us spiritually. And God understands all of that. The need to rest. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can contemplate how you've designed us. And we are so thankful that you have revealed to us what we need. We do want to be useful instruments. We do want to be fruitful servants. And thank you for revealing to us everything that we need. So that, Father, we can reach our fullest spiritual potential. And Father, I pray that we'll all open our hearts to what we've seen in Scripture tonight, and that is the importance of rest in our lives. And so, Father, I just pray that we'll all take it to heart, that we'll look at our own lives, that we will see things and assess things and with clarity, and that we will uh, initiate changes if necessary to be able to have the rest we need to keep us spiritually fresh, spiritually healthy, spiritually vibrant. And so, Father, it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as an invitation tonight, let me just shift gears. Um, you know, I was reading an article. In fact, I was reading the article today, and I came across that. There's a, uh, there's a rock climber by the name of Alex Honnold. I, I bet some of you know who that is. He's, he's the most famous rock climber in all the world. There was a, there was a, uh, a documentary that came out, uh, it's probably been three or four years now, called Free Solo. And if you haven't seen Free Solo, it, it will just... It will rock your world. Uh, Alex Honnold became world famous. He was uh, years ago was on the cover of National Geographic, and he's standing uh, on the on the north face of uh, what's called Half Dome in Yosemite. It's a vertical granite, and he's up there all alone. There's no there's no ropes. He's not doesn't have any harnesses or anything like that. And and he does a lot of free soloing. That's what free soloing is, by the way. Free soloing is rock climbing without any safety gear at all. Now, virtually nobody does that. Because, like, as they interview in this documentary Free Solo, some of the old-timers will say, well, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is anybody who's made free soloing a big part of their life, they're dead. Because just... One mistake, one slip. My wife and I were in Yosemite last fall, and you know the, the, the rangers set up uh, on the uh, uh, across from the Great Wall called El Cap, El Capitan, and they have a spotting scope. And at a certain time every day, and people can come by, and uh, and they have all that climbing gear out. And you know, if you're interested in that climbing world, and I'm interested in that, wouldn't do it for the world because I'm terrified of heights, but I'm fascinated by the world of climbing. 
And I remember coming up there and, and I'm like, are there people up on that wall right now? Because I couldn't see anything. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And she looked and zeroed in the spotting scope. And sure enough, there are people hanging on the wall, all over the wall, climbing up the wall. 3,000 feet of sheer granite, sheer vertical granite straight up. Uh, what Honnold did and what the movie Free Solo documents is he's the first man, he's the first human being who has ever climbed that without any safety gear. And he spent years training for it. And it's not like he walked up to him going, oh, I'm going to climb this and started climbing. It's not like that. I mean, and in, in, in you'll see this in, in the show, he's like... Uh, you know, he's hanging from the ropes and all as he's, as he's practicing with safety gear and all. And they may have even, they may even have toothbrushes looking for just a little dent in the rock where he can put a tip of a finger. And everything is choreographed. At this point, left pinky finger goes here, thumb goes here. Everything is choreographed. Um, so that's who Alex Honnold is. And, and so he's world renowned. So I was reading an article today about it. And he just had a baby. He got married and he had a baby. And, and so the person in the, the, uh, who's interviewing him, you know, goes in a lot of different directions with it. And, and he asks him about, because some people think this, that he, he doesn't have any fear of death. And, and so they asked him about that. And, and, and Alex Honnold said, uh, you know, no, it's not that. I, I, I mean, it's not that I'm not afraid of dying. You know, falling and dying. Of course, of course, that's there. Uh, he said, and then he goes, well, how do you deal with that? And he says, well, you just have to decide that you're not going to die. Okay. Just decide that you're not going to die. Hey, listen. I got news for you. You can't decide. That you're not going to die. That's a decision that is not in your hands. The fact of the matter is, you are going to die. Every person in here is going to die. It is appointed unto man wants to die. And after that, to face the judgment, the Hebrew writer says. You're going to die. So that counsel just really just falls flat. Well, just decide that you're not going to die. Well, since you are going to die, though, let me tell you what you can decide. Because it says once you're once appointed to die, you're going to die, and after that, to face judgment. But what you can decide is how you respond to Jesus Christ. That's what you can decide. And if you make the right decision when you die and you stand before God and you have decided to trust Jesus Christ with your life, and you've made that decision, I'm going to follow Christ. And you make that decision, when you stand before God, you are going to ultimately live forever. Now that's a decision you can make. And so, as we sit here tonight, as we gather tonight, as we're winding up tonight, I want to ask you the question, have you made that decision? You're going to die. I'm not going to say, well, just decide not to die. No, no, you're going to die I'm going to say, decide what you do with Jesus. And if you have not made that decision yet, if you've not decided to follow Him, to confess Him as the risen Lord, to surrender your life to Him and let Him have control of it, the Bible calls that repentance. 
And then based on that penitent faith to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If you've not made that decision tonight, I hope that you'll make it right now. And if you've made that decision, but you have wandered away from the Lord, you've been distracted by the world, your heart, life hasn't been given to him, and you need to him, that you'll do that. Maybe it's something that you need to take care of just between you and God right where you're sitting. But it might be something that you need to take care of in more of a public way. And if that's the case, I hope that you'll do that because we want to pray with you and we want to pray for you. And so if you have a spiritual need to take care of tonight, why don't you do it right now while together we stand and while we sing.